welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Jennifer Yang from the University of California, Davis, talking about genitourinary pediatric oncology. Okay, um, good morning. I hope all of you can hear me okay. Uh, thank you again for joining us this morning for the next in the COVID 2020 lecture series. I'm Jennifer Yang. I'm the um, program director and a pediatric urologist at UC Davis, and we'll be talking about genitourinary pediatric oncology today. Um, joining me, I have Dr. Philip Shao. He's one of our PGY4 residents. He's going to be helping me to moderate the session. I did want to thank all the support staff, um, Kirsty and Michelle um, from UCSF for really um, helping with all the logistics and also for um, Claire De La Calle, who is one of the PGY5 um, UCSF residents who's also here in support. Um, so um, hopefully you guys are all doing well. Um, I'm very appreciative of the time and opportunity to connect with you, to share some education as well as to uh, help support each other in these times. I have no uh, relevant disclosures to make. So just a basic overview of what we're going to be doing today. Um, we're going to be covering the genitourinary uh, pediatric oncology section of the AUA core curriculum. And it's basically covering um, three different tumor types. The first will be Wilms tumor. Um, then we'll cover a section on pediatric tumors, and we'll follow that with a section on rhabdomyosarcomas in the pediatric population. Um, I have included a few polling questions, which will hopefully allow us to do some interaction uh, throughout the presentation. And we'll try to reserve the last 10 to 15 minutes of our session today for uh, questions which um, the participants can put into the question and answer um, chat. Um, I did want to tell a, a, you know, a little story about myself. I um, was actually a resident at New York Presbyterian Hospital Cornell um, in New York City where there's a, um, basically it's an entirely COVID hospital. And um, I am definitely thinking of my uh, friends, colleagues and family who are in the New York area and all of you who are out there and I hope that you guys are well. Um, I actually did see my first Wilms tumor patient um, as a PGY5 resident and did the uh, radical nephrectomy and uh, lymph node dissection with Dr. Dix Pappas. So um, this definitely uh, is something that I, um, is not common, these tumors are not common, but something that is definitely um, memorable. Okay, so we're gonna get started with Wilms tumor. Um, Wilms tumors originate from abnormal proliferation of metanephric blastema. And you'll see throughout my presentation, I have included a lot of histological slides. Um, I understand that the in-service and board exams no longer include his, um, histopathology, but I do think it is really important in trying to um, understand the picture both of um, how it's treated and understanding some of the pathognomonic uh, phrases that you'll see with these uh, pediatric oncologic cases. So you can see on, on the slide there that pathology for Wilms tumor is typically triphasic, and this means it includes components of blastema, stroma, and epithelium. 
And you can see on the slide there that in the center, there are all these um, blastemal cells that are trying to form rosettes and it's surrounded by um, epithelium. And then you can see some myxoid stroma that's uh, in between. Wilms tumor is the most common pediatric urologic tumor and represents 80% of all uh, pediatric urologic solid tumors. Um, epidemiology, I think, is um, really quite important. Um, it's uh, important when you're reading exam questions to um, take note of the patient's age as well as their gender and any other identifying factors because this will really help you overall in trying to decipher what type of tumor and then based on that um, what is going to be the treatment strategy and basically the way to figure out the correct answer for your question. So for Wilms tumor, um, median age is going to be 3.5 years and the male to female distribution is equal. A majority of patients are going to be less than five years of age. And um, to remember that Wilms tumor is exceedingly rare in infants. And so if you hear about a renal tumor in an infant, especially less than three months old, you need to be thinking about congenital mesoblastic nephroma. Now, this isn't mentioned in the core curriculum, but I thought I would just bring this up. This is a tumor that's usually uh, detected on prenatal ultrasound. You can see from these examples of the fetal ultrasound, the top picture is showing um, a kidney with a large sort of encapsulated tumor that's um, definitely more vascular. And um, the, these patients typically have um, uh, polyhydroamnios. They can um, have issues with hypertension and uh, are often born premature. And typically surgical section is curative and there's almost no, no uh, cases described of a metastatic disease for congenital mesoblastic nephroma. Um, if you do have a scenario or a case, a patient that presents and they're over 10 years of age, um, you should also consider other etiologies that might be mimicking a Wilms tumor, such as other re renal tumors, renal cell carcinoma, you can have urothelial tumors as well, and then other non-oncologic uh, origins such as an abscess or a segmental polynephritis. In terms of risk factors for Wilms, um, just remember that the vast majority of Wilms tumors are going to be sporadic in nature, but there are approximately 10% which are associated with um, congenital um, syndromes. And the way to think about the congenital syndromes for Wilms, um, you can break them down by either uh, a syndrome associated with somatic overgrowth, and this includes Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome and hemihypertrophy. Um, and these syndromes are associated with an abnormal chromosome imprinting on chromosome 11P15. And the other subcategory is going to be the syndromes that are um, don't feature somatic overgrowth. And these, the typical syndromes that we think of in this group would be um, Dennis-Strass syndrome or WAGAR. And these are usually um, uh, associated with the WT gene, which is on 11P13. You can see from the chart on the side of uh, the slide that there is a differing risk for tumor um, formation in these groups, and it is recommended that for high-risk patients, such as those with Perlman, Dennis Drash, or Wagger, they need to be um, screened uh, every three months with an abdominal ultrasound until they're eight years of age. 
So this brings us to our first polling question of the day. I'm gonna go ahead and read it. Um, which of the following is not a feature of Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome? Is it neonatal hypoglycemia, aniridia, microglossia, midline defects, or ear creases? And we'll give you guys about 20 to 25 seconds to um, select your answer. Okay, so looks like about half of you replied the correct answer, which is B, aniridia. Aniridia is gonna be a feature of the Wagger syndrome. And if you guys remember, Wagger stands for Wilms tumor, aniridia, the G represents genital abnormalities or ambiguity. And then the R is for uh, developmental delay or what they used to call mental retardation, so. Okay, so let's move on and finish talking about Wilms. So we'll speak briefly on other risk factors in addition to um, um, syndromes um, that affect the prognosis and overall risk stratification for Wilms tumor. One of them is gonna be a biomarker, the loss of heterozygosity on chromosome 16Q or 1P, which does portend a worse prognosis. Anaplasia that's noted on histopathology is going to be one of the um, most significant um, predictors of increased risk for relapse or death. And then there is a discussion about nephrogenic rests, which are abnormally retained embryonic kidney precursor cells. And um, these uh, precursor cells may go, uh, undergo maturation, sclerosis, involution, or complete disappearance. They are noted in approximately one-third of uh, patients with unilateral Wilms tumor and 100% of patients with bilateral Wilms tumor. And they can be found incidentally in infants uh, undergoing post-mortem examination. The diagram that you see to the right of the slide depicts the two subtypes of nephrogenic rests, including the intralobar nephrogenic rests, which tend to form sooner. And those are the ones that are associated with the syndromes with um, that somatic growth is not a feature of versus the perilobar um, nephrogenic rests, which tend to form around the renal lobe and are more commonly associated with uh, Beckwith-Wiedemann and hemihypertrophy. So clinical presentation for these Wilms patients, um, as mentioned before, they're usually less than five years of age and um, median age is 3.5 years. There is a clinical triad. Most patients do present with abdominal mass. And we used to emphasize that this abdominal mass is typically um, on one side and doesn't cross the midline. And this is to differentiate between a Wilms tumor versus a neuroblastoma. Um, some patients can also have hematuria pain. Other associated symptoms include hypertension and um, be looking for things on physical exam that might represent a syndrome. I put two examples here to the side. The top picture is a picture of a child with hemihypertrophy, where you can tell one side of the body is uh, larger than the other uh, side. And then the bottom picture is just a nice example of um, sporadic aniridia. 
Workup of these patients include CBC chem panel LFTs. Uh, Preoperative imaging is important, um, mostly because it allows us to understand the extent of the tumor and also to look at the contralateral kidney uh, to ensure that there's no other concerning disease on that other kidney. We do also pursue um, a rule out um, metastases workup, including a chest X-ray or a CT of the chest to rule out uh, pulmonary disease. So when we talk about treatment for Wilms tumor, we're going to be following the children's oncology group protocols. And here in the United States, that uh, pretty much means upfront surgery. Um, so for um, Wilms tumor stages one through four, um, the initial treatment is going to be radical nephrectomy. Um, and at that time, also a limited uh, lymph node sampling. And as mentioned before, the contralateral kidney does not need to be explored at the time of radical nephrectomy as long as the preoperative CT or MRI demonstrates a normal kidney. One thing to be um, careful of for surgeons that are um, uh, operating on patients with Wilms tumors that intraoperative tumor spillage does result in upstaging and requires additional treatment with abdominal radiation. So um, the current spillage rate for um, that's documented in most of the uh, trials for the children's oncology group is about 10%. It's obviously more common with uh, larger tumors. So um, overall treatment strategies from these cooperative groups has resulted in a dramatically improved survival for most patients above 90% of all stages. Um, again, uh, preoperative biopsy is not indicated. In fact, if there is a preoperative biopsy, it, does, uh, is, it is an equivalent of tumor spillage and does uh, require an upstage. Um, preoperative chemotherapy um, under the um, COG protocols is reserved for patients that have bilateral tumors, syndromic patients, any patients with um, solitary kidneys, and then further risk stratification will determine the actual treatment protocol, um, which typically includes multi-agent chemotherapy and radiation. Um, uh, if there is a patient with Wilms tumor, you should contact um, the primary investigator at your institution to understand what the um, current uh, treatment protocols are. There's also information on these contacts on the Society for Pediatric Urology website. And then just one last slide for Wilms tumor about some different trends. Um, the role of um, laparoscopic or minimally invasive surgery is really reserved for patients with smaller tumors and after they have received chemotherapy, I'd say the vast majority of patients are still um, receiving large transverse abdominal or thoracal abdominal incisions and a flank is, incision isn't really appropriate. So um, there is a very nice video on the core curriculum page, um, actually several nice videos of a radical infecting problem. So be sure to check those out. Um, regarding the role of partial nephrectomy in non-syndromic unilateral patients, um, it's not currently supported um, in the initial studies looking at partial nephrectomy in um, syndromic patients. There was a greater than expected tumor spillage rate and a more significant microscopic residual disease. So this is not something that is recommended um, and most of the momentum towards partial nephrectomy comes from the adult literature um, regarding uh, uh, partial nephrectomy in the patients with RRC. 
which can provide adequate oncologic uh, control but still spare nephrons, but this is not supported in Wilms tumor patients right now. And some of the um, newer protocols are looking at very low risk patients um, that can be treated with surgery alone. And these include patients that are less than two years of age with favorable histology and a tumor weight that's less than 500 grams. And this is really to sort of um, prevent the long-term complications of chemotherapy and radiation in this population. So we're gonna go ahead and move on to uh, testicular tumors in the pediatric population. Um, they're a very uh, wide group of and, and different group of, of tumor types. It does represent one to 2% of all pediatric solid tumors. The annual incidence is approximately one in 100,000. Majority of these tumors are gonna again occur in, in patients between the age of two and four years. And unlike adult pediatric, I'm sorry, adult uh, testicular tumors, the vast majority of pediatric testicular tumors are going to be benign. And the reason that the literature represents a wider spread between 38 to 74 percent of cases is because um, some of the benign cases are probably underrepresented. Metastasis is pretty rare. It usually occurs in less than 15 percent of all tumors, and it can be to either lymph nodes, hematogenous, or both. And you can see these are some just nice pictures from the core curriculum looking at different pathologic specimens. So we all know the risk factors for testis cancer in adults. And this includes cryptoorganism. We now know that the age of orchiopexy is actually very important in terms of the risk for uh, developing uh, a testicular tumor down the line. And after review of several meta-analyses that were published a number of years ago, it does appear that in the age, uh, the age of orchiopexy over pub, like beyond puberty, is going to be your highest risk factor. In addition to cryptoorganism, there is also family history of testicular cancer, a personal history of testicular cancer, and the presence of intratubular germ cell, um, germ cell neoplasia. In the pediatric population, it's a little bit different. Most of the risk that's associated with pediatric tumors has to do with the history of disorders of sexual development. Um, there is an increased risk of gonadal tumors in, these, uh, in this patient population, and the highest risk is going to be for those that have hypovirilization and the presence of a, a um, dysgenetic gonad. Um, intratubular germ cell neoplasia has been noted in 6% of children with DSD with an even higher incidence after puberty. And in fact, the risk increases to approximately 10% as the patients um, go past 20 years of age. Uh, I just put this example uh, of a study where they um, are looking at why this is the case. And many of the um, researchers in this area believe that there, because of the dysgenetic gonad, if you look at the schematic of the hypothalamic pituitary gen, um, uh, access, that because the gonad is dysgenetic, there then is an upregulation of your FSH and LH. And they've actually found in some of these studies that um, when they look at the level of FSH and LH in these patients, the higher and more abnormal these um, gonadotropes are, the more um, uh, the higher the incidence of having intratubular germ cell neoplasia in, in these uh, specimens. 
So this is just a chart of the different uh, classifications that, um, and it helps you to sort of organize in your mind for pediatric testicular tumors, the difference between either germ cell tumor and examples for germ cell tumor for benign include a teratoma or an epidermal cyst, and then malignant would be a yolk sac tumor. For gonadal stromal tumors, um, benign tumors are Leydig cell um, and um, juvenile granulosis cell tumors, and the Sertelli cells um, could possibly be placed into the benign category, but I did put this on the malignant side uh, for this particular slide. And then there are paratesticular tumors. Um, rhabdomyosarcoma, we're obviously gonna speak, of, um, speak about at the end of um, the next section of my talk. And then there are benign tumors in the paratesticular region, including a lipoma or a leomyoma. So just a couple of quick facts to sort of um, remind ourselves about the pediatric testicular tumor. Most common type is going to be a germ cell tumor, and the most common benign type of tumor is going to be a teratoma, okay? And this is the reason why the most common type of pediatric tumor is a germ cell tumor, because the teratoma is a germ cell tumor. The most common malignant tumor in prepubal boys is going to be your yolk sac tumor, okay? This is a study from National Children's that looked at the sort of characteristics of tumor proportions um, by type and age in a, a subset of, uh, of patients. And you can see from the pie chart that the vast majority are going to be, over 40% are going to be um, teratoma and the epidermoid cyst. And this is the um, represents the benign tumors, but there is still a significant showing of the yolk sac tumors. And you can see by the distribution of this bar graph here, that again, majority of the patients are gonna be um, less between um, two to four years, and definitely less than five years of age. So presentation uh, is, is um, usually a painless testicular mass. It sometimes can be associated with other types of pathology, including a hernia or hydrocele. Um, and typically, uh, providers will order a testicular ultrasound uh, to, to better delineate what um, is being felt on their physical exam. And just to remember, obviously, that the testicular ultrasound cannot reliably distinguish between benign and malignant tumors. And typically, there is um, no role for. Um, uh, biopsy of these tumors, we would treat them uh, and work them up the same, but not uh, uh, not biopsy them before uh, surgical treatment. So in your workup, you may do a the testicular ultrasound as mentioned, and even though you can't necessarily tell if it's benign or malignant, there are certain features uh, that you can see on ultrasound that might be suggestive of, of a benign appearing tumor, and it can be cystic areas, either one large cyst or you can see cystic dysplasia associated with uh, a teratoma or a cystic granulosa tumor. Um, you can also see something like this, which we'll review uh, a little bit later. This is a very characteristic appearance of an epidermoid cyst. And the other thing that ultrasound is useful to see is that when you see something that looks benign, if you're able to have enough of the intervening parenchyma, that still might make this um, a, a candidate for a testicular salvage procedure or a partial orchiectomy. Workup should also include tumor markers. Obviously, serum AFP um, 
yolk cell tumors invariably produce AFP, and the other tumors, uh, teratomas and other benign lesions are usually associated with normal AFP values. And just remember in infants, um, typically they have elevated AFP levels until about after eight months. I did put this table at the bottom of your slide that just reminds you of the half-life and other different details of the various tumor markers, which are still uh, important uh, to understand. ADHCG is common in mixed um, germ cell tumors and embryonal tumors, but rarely elevated in the pediatric population. Okay, so we're gonna speak specifically about some of these uh, different subtypes uh, just briefly. So yolk sac tumor, as you um, may recall, is gonna be the most common uh, uh, type of malignant uh, tumor in prepubital patients. Um, its initial treatment is going to be a radical inguinal orchiectomy, and metastatic workup does reveal pulmonary metastases in about 20% of patients and retroperitoneal metastases in 4 to 6% of the patients. Um, stage 1 disease, which is the vast majority of patients, um, they do not require additional chemotherapy. Um, they will be on an active surveillance protocol. Stage two, three, and four obviously do require chemotherapy, um, often for the more advanced stages with multiple agents. I did again put up this um, pathognomonic uh, histology picture that I want you guys to remember. And this is a Schiller-Duval body, and it's basically a cluster of tumor cells that's surrounding a central blood vessel. And then on the periphery, you can see the tumor vessel, I'm, I'm sorry, the tumor cells are kind of flattened on the outside, okay? Moving on to teratoma. Um, once again, majority of benign tumors um, on ultrasound can have a variable appearance. Sometimes it can look very homogeneous, anechoic, but there can be also some complexity with um, alternating cystic lesions surrounded by highly echogenic signals. Again, tumor markers are typically negative. Treatment is gonna be either radical or partial orchiectomy, as long as you can confirm by frozen section what the diagnosis is. So in the prepubital setting, usually excision is sufficient. And I just put slides up here, uh, different examples of components of the teratoma that you may see, including cartilage, squamous epithelium, and intestinal type glands. Immature teratoma, excuse me, immature teratoma is less common and is usually benign. And you'll see instead of the um, um, mature cell types that you'll see in mature teratoma, you'll see other types of histology which represent more Im immature or potentially malignant um, cell types. So you can see islands of small hyperchromatic cells and this is a, a primitive neuroepithelium appearing uh, tissue as well as primitive glands. Um, usually you do radical resection with a radical inguinal orchiectomy um, and only salvage chemotherapy if there is a concern for malignancy, uh, I'm sorry, metastatic potential. Epidermoid cyst is gonna be your monodermal teratoma and it's a, uh, usually differentiated squamous line cysts, and it has a very characteristic appearance as we already saw on the previous slide. And what you're seeing is concentric rings of alternating hypo and hyperechoic layers, and it's called a onion skin appearance. 
your AFP levels are going to be normal. And then you can see on the ultrasound that usually there is no Doppler flow uh, within that tumor. Um, the gross specimen is also very uh, characteristic. Um, it is uh, very amenable to nucleation at the time of partial orchiectomy. And you can see the um, keratinous filled debris on the pathologic specimen on the lower right-hand corner. So just to mention briefly, because there is a lot of information in this section of the AA core curriculum, uh, these are some of the other um, testicular tumors that are mentioned, and I tried to just summarize it in one word or phrase. So when you think about the other uh, germ cell tumors that are out there, seminoma is really uncommon in the pediatric population and is typically associated with a, a patient that has a DSD. Um, usually treatment is gonna follow whatever um, you would do for an adult seminoma. Um, for another type of germ cell tumor, gonadoblastoma is considered a precancerous lesion in patients that have history of DSD in the presence of a Y chromosome. Um, if it does have malignant features, it then becomes a dysgermanoma. Um, in the second box, you'll see listed there some very common stromal tumors. Uh, the most common stromal tumor is going to be your Leydig cell tumor. And these patients, in addition to presenting with a painless testicular mass, also can present with precocious puberty. So if that's also evident on your workup, you need to include a hormone panel. Um, they are typically benign and can be managed with either partial radical orchiectomy. Sertoli cell tumors are also the second most common stromal tumors in the pediatric population, and they may be associated with genetic syndromes. They're fairly rare, rarely metastasized, and can be managed the same with a testicular uh, sparing procedure. And then in neonates, the most common stromal tumor is gonna be your juvenile granulosa cell tumor. Just one mention of um, the testis as one of the more common sites for metastatic spread for leukemia and lymphoma. And um, for AL patients that have relapse, about 20% of them will relapse within their testicles. And so that's something to be aware of. Oh, and I wanted to bring up one more picture here, and this is um, a histologic picture of a Leydig cell tumor. It has um, these uh, inclusion um, eosinophilic uh, bodies within the cytoplasm, and these are um, um, very, very important. Like, you won't be seeing these on any types of um, uh, exam questions, but you do need to, to remember these um, as, uh, as something that's uh, um, common for late egg cell tumor. So that does bring us to our second polling question of the day. And this is a little bit long, so maybe we'll give you a little bit more time to read through the question, but it says, a two-year-old boy presents with a painless testicular mass, a transcrotal biopsy is done, and pathology reveals a yolk sac tumor. The AFP is elevated and the CT admin pelvis is negative for metastatic disease. After initial radical orchiectomy, what would be the most appropriate next step in treatment? Would it be observation only with serial exams, uh, tumor markers, and imaging? Would it be a hemiscriptectomy um, or systemic chemotherapy with three cycles of cisplatinum, etoposide, and gliomycin? or RPLND, 
after the AFP normalizes or none of the above. And I appreciate you guys for uh, really focusing. I know this was a, a longer question, um, so we'll give you a few minutes. Okay, that probably wasn't a few minutes, but um, in the interest of time, let's see what our results show. So most of you uh, selected observation, and this was me, the question writer, uh, trying to trip you up. <laughs> the reason is, is I included that a biopsy was done, which is very unusual, but it does happen, okay, because uh, these type of uh, processes are very um, rare and sometimes um, providers who aren't familiar with pediatric testicular tumors will recommend biopsy. And if that is done, it does require an upstaging. And so the correct answer is actually C, systemic chemotherapy, okay? So if the biopsy hadn't been done, uh, uh, answer A would have been correct. All right, so this brings us to our last portion of our talk this morning. We're gonna talk about rhabdomyosarcoma. Uh, rhabdomyosarcoma is a, um, the most common pediatric soft tissue sarcoma. It does tend to be very aggressive in nature and is derived from embryonic mesenchymal tissue, mostly striated muscle cells. It um, mostly affects the trunk and extremities, but it can um, arise in the GU system, accounting for approximately 20% of patients. And the more common sites would be bladder prostate, followed by paratesticular, and then vaginal uterine are gonna be um, more rare. We do see a bimodal distribution. Um, there is a peak between the years of um, two and four years of age, and then another peak um, in the later teenage years. There's a slight male predominance with the male to female ratio of um, one, I'm sorry, that should read one to 1.3. So um, the um, children's oncology group does recognize um, three subtypes of tumor histology for rhabdomyosarcoma. Um, uh, this includes embryonal, which does portend a more favorable prognosis and is more common in younger children versus the alveolar, which does have a poor prognosis. They have identified a fusion gene, which um, is present in up to 80% of the alveolar subtype uh, patients. And this um, is seen as a translocation between the PAX3 or 7 uh, gene and the FOXO1. Uh, the last subtype would be the anaplastic or undifferentiated. I just put here this Kaplan-Meier um, curve that was a part of the study looking at the fusion gene status in this particular subtype of alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma in comparison to the embryonal uh, subtype. And you can see that those that have a fusion gene negative, their clinical behavior and their outcomes are very similar to those um, that um, of, of the embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma. And so the fusion gene is definitely a very important prognostic factor for uh, the alveolar patients. 
um, risk factors for actually developing rhabdomyosarcoma in, in patients' history include advanced maternal age, either high birth weight or large for gestational age. Interestingly, a history of maternal drug use and exposure to radiation can increase your risk of a rhabdomyosarcoma. And there are a few associated known genetic orders, although the majority of these tumors are gonna be sporadic. Uh, they can be affiliated with neurofibromatosis type one or the Lee-Fermini syndrome. Um, interestingly, um, uh, atopic conditions like allergies, eczema, and allergic reactions tend to be protective. And so there may be some relationship between immune-related factors and development of these type of tumors, which is undergoing further investigation by the children's oncology group. Clinical presentation for these patients, um, obviously for vaginal and peritesticular um, tumors, they have an earlier presentation because uh, these tumors are more visual or more easily visualized or palpated, but because of the very centralized location of a bladder prostate tumor, they usually present later with urinary tension, gross hematuria, and other types of voiding symptoms. Um, they can also present with constipation. You can see from the pictures of this um, bladder rhabdomyosarcoma how it can definitely impede and cause outlet obstruction. Natural history for most of these patients is a rapid growth and invasion with hematogenous metastases and regional lymph node involvement. Um, other prognostic factors to consider for patients with rhabdomyosarcoma include age. So this is very important because pa patients that are over the age of 10 years have a worse prognosis. We discussed tumor histology as being important and Brynell is also, um, as mentioned before, favorable. Um, especially the, the Botroids variant. Um, there is a different prognosis for anatomic site with vaginal peritesticular being better than bladder prostate. And obviously tumor burden and stage are important um, and fusion gene status as mentioned before. So some just general principles about treatment of rhabdomyosarcoma in the pediatric population. Um, metastatic workup is usually completed for all patients, and this is um, going to include either a CT scanner MRI to um, better delineate the primary tumor as well as um, local spread or lymphatic spread. Um, it does, should also include um, a CT scan of the chest, and most patients to this date are still getting um, bone marrow biopsies as well as bone scans to fully assess their um, workup, although there may be a subset of patients who are lower risk that don't require bone marrow biopsy, but at this time it's still recommended. Um, complete surgical resection is not generally uh, done unless um, there's a possibility for organ sparing. So typically for most of these patients, your initial objective is going to just be to get a biopsy for diagnosis and to uh, know histology and fusion gene status to further risk stratify these patients. Um, delayed primary excision could be considered after chemotherapy because it does help to reduce the irradiation dose that these patients require for local control. Um, and um, if there is a high-risk patient with viable tumor, you could um, consider 
really aggressive or heroic pelvic incineration that that's rarely done these days. So what you really need to remember for rhabdomyosarcoma is it should be a multimodal therapy with organ preservation. And we're gonna go through each of the subsets just a little bit more in detail. So gynecological rhabdomyosarcoma um, typically presents with either a mass or vaginal bleeding, okay? Um, usually you can uh, biopsy, obviously the tumor for your tissue diagnosis or consider complete resection if organ sparing is, is um, um, achievable. Although the majority of the recent studies looking at gynecological rhabdomyosarcoma um, really do um, highlight and emphasize the uh, treatability of these tumors uh, without surgical intervention. And typically pelvic lymph node dissection is not necessary. The um, children's oncology group protocol includes primary chemotherapy and radiation for local control plus or minus surgical excision. And the overall survival at five years is generally good at 82%. I just have a picture here of the cluster of grapes that you um, may have heard or read about in the Boitroid version of the rhabdomyosarcoma. And this is just a, a picture, a histologic picture looking at the hypercellular a subepithelial layer that you'll see here in the intact squamous epithelium. So for bladder prostate, um, initially for diagnosis, um, you can achieve this through endoscopy um, with a TUR. Um, but if there is any difficulty from that realm, an open transvesical approach for biopsy um, is recommended. And at that time, pelvic and paraaortic lymph node sampling can also be achieved. Um, CT scan is useful um, for assessment of regional lymph nodes if the open biopsy cannot be done. But if there is an abnormal lymph node, it does require some type of histologic um, specimen to uh, be able to adequately restratify these patients. Um, some things to note is that after chemotherapy and radiation, sometimes residual masses do not represent viable tumor. And this is to, again, support the organ preservation or uh, basically not trying to recommend um, aggressive or heroic um, surgery in some of these patients. Uh, the, the, what seems like a tumor could just be surrounding stroma that has collapsed after the tumor itself involuted, or sometimes the tumors can um, mature into um, mature rhabdomyoblasts and only require observation. So with these trends of organ sparing, overall survival through the years has been fairly stable at 78 to 83% for these patients. Lastly, we'll talk about paratisticular rhabdomyosarcoma. Um, these account for 7 to 10% of the um, rhabdomyosarcomas that we see in the pediatric population. Um, and they typically arise from the distal portion of the spermatic cord. And once again, present as a painless scrotal swelling and a mass that's usually distinct from the testicle. And you can usually see the testicle is completely separated as you can see from these bottom images on the ultrasound. Often there's an associated hydrocele. You know that the, the tumor itself is typically heterogeneous and very vascular. Initial treatment is going to be with radical inguinal orchiectomy. And at diagnosis, the vast majority of patients are gonna be considered stage one. And because of this, and because of the fact that over 90% of paratisticular rhabdomyosarcomas do have an embryonal um, 
uh, histology subtype, their overall have very good prognosis. Um, the one category of patients that we do have to be very careful of, in are the older patients that present with paratisticular rhabdomyosarcoma. These patients over the age of 10 years do have a higher risk for retroperitoneal relapse, and therefore it is recommended that they receive an upfront um, RPLND before chemotherapy. Uh, much of this is based on a very old and dated uh, study that was published in the journal Pediatric Surgery in 1994 where they uh, looked at the lymph node status of 121 patients. And what they found was that in a, a very significant proportion of patients with clinically negative uh, staging based on imaging of the lymph nodes, um, there was approximately 14% false, a false negative rate. And that these patients, especially over the age of 10, had very poor uh, prognosis. And so that's why the recommendations are still standing for an upfront RPLND. So just a few things to sort of summarize um, for rhabdomyosarcoma and rhinal type is most common, has favorable prognosis. Majority of paratisticular rhabdomyosarcomas are stage one. An organ sparing approach is preferred for bladder, prostate, and genital rhabdomyosarcoma, and vaginal and uterine primaries are associated with good prognosis. So we're gonna finish out this session with our final polling question. This is polling question number three. It says, for genitourinary rhabdomyosarcoma in children, which of the following risk factors is associated with a poor prognosis? Is it age less than nine years, embryonal histology, the presence of the Pax-Foxo-1 fusion gene, a vaginal anatomic site of origin, or tumor size of less than four centimeters? Okay, great. So looks like vast majority of you picked the answer C, which is correct. The presence of the Pax-Fox01 fusion gene is gonna be the um, risk factor associated with the poor prognosis. So that brings us to the end of our uh, lecture portion uh, today. Um, and so, I did want to again thank you all for uh, tuning in from wherever you may be. And um, we'll now, um, I'm going to ask Phil to uh, try to summarize some of the questions that came in through the question answer uh, chat box. And we'll see if we can answer those. Just to remind you, um, we will have the slides available and posted. And, um, and hopefully, this. This uh, lecture is also being recorded, so you guys can review it if you do have other questions. All right, uh, thank you everybody for your participation. Thank you, Dr. Yang, for your presentation. Um, there were a good amount of questions, so I'm going to split up the questions we received uh, based on the three sort of um, malignant neoplasms we had. So for Wilms tumor, uh, Dr. Yang, one of the questions was, um, why is the flank incision inappropriate in Wilms tumor? So um, usually a flank incision isn't going to be adequate in terms of your exposure because there's such a concern with tumor spillage and the fact that you need to do an adequate lymph node um, 
uh, sampling, uh, it's generally thought that a simple flank incision isn't going to be enough. So you do need to use a larger uh, transverse transabdominal incision or thoracal abdominal incision. So it ha has to do with just making sure that you're careful not to uh, have tumor spillage and uh, adequately do uh, what you need to, which is unusual because believe me, uh, pediatric surgeons usually like to make really small incisions, so. Okay, for the second question uh, for Wilms tumor, um, how do you determine histology in low-grade Wilms patients without a biopsy or just therefore upstaging? Um, so, I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're alluding to if you have a patient that has a renal tumor and you can't confirm it's Wilms, and um, usually there, there is no, there, there are certain circumstances when you can uh, use a biopsy to help you, but because of the risk for upstaging, it's usually not recommended. So based on the, um, what you know from the appearance and the patient's age, um, they can be treated without biopsy. So making it's an assumption that it is a Wilms tumor and they can get treated. So um, in patients that either have syndromic uh, conditions that have uh, a high predisposition for developing Wilms tumor, um, a bilateral Wilms tumor patient or a patient with solitary kidney, you do not need to biopsy them. They, will, they can be treated upfront and that's preferred. And the reason is, is because it will give you, um, one, you won't have to automatically upstage them and require them to have abdominal radiation, which has a lot of long-term and short-term morbidity for these patients, but also because you might be able to have a more manageably resectable tumor if you are trying to approach these patients with partial nephrectomy. Great. Um, the next uh, part is um, we had a lot more questions about the testicular tumor. Um, we had one question where um, one of our participants wanted to ask uh, if there's any pediatric evidence that an ITGCN actually increases the risk of testicular cancer, and if you have any sort of, you know, new data, about, uh, new data or studies that address that question. Um, that's a good question, and that's probably an area that I don't know enough about, and probably one of the questions that. Um, I would have to post an answer to after having a chance to review the literature. So um, most of the studies that I looked at for pediatric testicular tumors and intertubular um, germ cell neoplasia had to do with the DSD population. And a lot of those um, case series are very limited just because it's so rare. So it's hard to sort of apply it to the broader uh, patient population of all pediatric testicular tumors. Um, I would say that um, randomly biopsying the um, parenchyma of either the ipsilateral, if you do a um, partial orchiectomy or contralateral um, testicle is not really indicated in looking for these precursor lesions. And so it's really tough to say how they play into it. Just remember that the vast majority of the tumors that are going to be in the pediatric population for testicular tumors are going to be benign. Okay, thank you. Um, also, a couple more questions about testicular tumors and sort of the surgical treatment or the surgical approach. Would you ever explore testicular tumors, or do you explore testicular tumors through an ingle approach, or would you actually go for the scrotal, and do you routinely send tissue for frozen path during these orchiectomies? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. all, all very good questions. So I think that if based on your ultrasound, as well as um, 
your tumor markers and metastatic workup being um, negative, I always approach all, all tumor processes through an inguinal incision because if you don't have your diagnosis yet, you don't want to violate those lymphatic uh, pathways um, by doing a scrotal incision. So even if you um, somehow knew in advance that it was going to you think it's going to be benign, you still need to approach it through an inguinal incision. And we basically um, talk to the families about how we think it's benign, but we don't know. So we set ourselves up to do radical or orchiectomy, and then um, after we get faster control of the spermatic cord, we basically are able to either biopsy or nucleate the mass and send it for frozen. And we wait for the, the final, uh, the, their diagnosis on frozen section. If they're fairly certain that it is a benign tumor, we will do a partial orchiectomy. But if there's any question whatsoever, or there's the diagnosis is not certain, we'll go ahead and do a radical orchiectomy through the inguinal incision. Okay. Um, for the leukemia or lymphoma of the testicle and prepubertal uh, pre uh, patients, is the treatment chemotherapy? Do we not take out these tumors or we only do surgery if they regress? Phil, can you repeat the first part? I'm sorry. I, was that regarding, did you say leukemia? Yes, leukemia or lymphoma in a, a, a pure in the testicle. Yeah, so um, when they, when leukemia lymphoma appears um, in the testicles metastatic spread, a biopsy is not necessarily um, indicated and it is treated with chemotherapy, not primary um, uh, excision. Um, in certain cases where it's either um, the disease is either resistant or recalcitrant, um, there is a role for biopsy. Um, we don't see it that often. I think it's only once um, that I've heard of that we've actually, that the oncology group has asked us to get a pathology in a patient with a leukemia for diagnosis. So it usually can be just treated uh, with additional chemotherapy. Okay. And um, down to rhabdomyosarcoma, the last few questions. Uh, do you have any comment about the quality of life and morbidity of, of pelvic radiotherapy in children? and do you suggest uh, sperm or egg banking in um, these patients? Yes, so um, just to address the fertility issues, um, we have been really trying to make sure our patients are um, in discussion um, with whatever fertility specialists are at their institution so they know what the options are. So I think um, depending on the age of the patients and um, the family's understanding and sort of um, uh, financial status that they may be able to um, figure out some type of banking. Um, for female patients, that's obviously um, more experimental, more difficult. Um, I don't think that there's uh, any institution, maybe down at Stanford, there might be something experimental with trying to save uh, certain, you know, uh, uh, preserve fertility in, in female patients, but it's something that should definitely be discussed. And yes, these patients um, do have very significant, both acute and long-term uh, issues. A lot of them are related to um, uh, inadequate sort of um, bladder capacity, urgency, frequency, and um, a lot of those issues. And then sort of longer-term issues related to radiation um, of the abdomen, including intestinal issues. So um, that's why it is very important to sort of um, risk stratify these patients and only be giving the radiation to uh, patients that really need it and trying to spare those others so we can uh, prevent some of these long-term effects. Okay. Um, I think we may have time for one more question. Great. Um, Great. 
I think um, people were wondering about the uh, polling question number two. Um, there were some questions about what the rationale for chemotherapy um, directly for that uh, yeah. for that question is, and if you could sort of go over your thought process one more time. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, like I said, I apologize. Uh, that's probably not one of the questions that would have made it to the in-service or board um, because it was one of those where you just throw in a little detail. Um, but if you read the section on the AA core curriculum of um, workup for a yolk sac tumor, um, if there is um, a, a biopsy that's done, it does consider that as an upstage. So even though that patient was stage one with negative tumor markers and no retroperitoneal disease, because of the biopsy, they then are required to get chemotherapy. So that's the rationale behind that question. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.